Again, it's good to see you this morning, and uh, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Job, and that's chapter 28, and if you're using your pew Bibles, uh, that would be page 435. Now, I'm not going to read the text right off the top. I'm going to offer a prayer, and I'd like to make a few comments, because we really are covering uh, the book of Job in... um, in the course of five sermons, um, which obviously means that there's, there's a lot that we're not going to be explicitly drawing your attention to, but I like to think about context for every passage that we're, that we're looking at in detail. So let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that as we look into this amazing uh, book of wisdom, um, the longest uh, wisdom book in the Bible, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, coming to Job 28, and as I said, I'm about to read it, just to set set the context for you, Job is now officially the last man standing. Uh, he's been in a debate, a contentious debate with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And he's been in a debate over one essential question. And that question is, is the tsunami of tragedy and misery that has engulfed Job, is it just or is it unjust? Is it just or is it not? And really, Job has uh, won the debate, if by no other the tactic, really, than, than wearing his opponents out. He's gone three rounds with these, with these three people. It extends over 24 chapters, about 8,500 words. And uh, if you read those chapters all together, or even skim those chapters, what you're going to see, see is that with each round, his friend's speeches overall become shorter. And Job's speeches become or remain very robust. Until in this third round, Bildad's speech consists of just six verses. And Zophar doesn't speak at all. So really at the end what's happened is that Job's three friends sort of retreated from the field of battle, this field of debate. And Job is left standing. But it's hardly a victory for Job. Uh, At the end, he's no closer to the truth than he was at the beginning. By insisting he doesn't deserve his misery and he doesn't deserve it, he has raised the question of whether God is just. And thinking themselves, I'm sure, to be defending God, his friends in turn have countered that Job is unrighteous and that he's undeserving. So that's where things stand. Now let's pause for a minute. I want to think with you about what's happening or what has happened with Job. Job has had a particular way of viewing human experience. He has had a particular way of viewing reality, a paradigm through which he views reality, including his, his misery. He has seen his suffering as a matter either of justice or injustice. 
as a matter of being deserved or being undeserved, as a judgment that is righteous or as a judgment that is unrighteous. And he sees very clearly he will not surrender what he calls his integrity. He sees very clearly that his, his misery is, um, is not just. It's not deserved. It's not righteous. But then how can that be when God, who's all-powerful, who must permit whatever occurs to occur, how can that be when God is just and when God is righteous? Is God unjust? Well, Job has not concluded that. But he's conflicted about it. He's deeply conflicted about it. He's demanded a hearing before God. And at the very least, Job is convinced that there's been some big mistake. That God has made a big mistake. So what is Job to do now when he's in this place? When he's in this position? And sooner or later in life, we all, I think, find ourselves in this position. In this quandary, deeply conflicted. Well, here in chapter 28, we reach the turning point. Another turning point in the book of Job. It's at least as significant as chapter 3 when Job broke his silence after seven days to curse the day that he was born, which set off the 24 chapters of debate that followed. This is a turning point also. And how do we understand it? And I want you to think about it with me in these terms. And then I'll go ahead and I will read it. Those of you who are familiar with the name of Catherine Kubler-Ross know that uh, she was a, uh, was, was a pioneer in describing the, the stages of grief that people go through. And uh, she wrote a very famous book, I think it was in the 60s, called On Death and On Dying. And when she identified these stages of grief, and it may not only be related to people who are terminally ill, but people who lose loved ones, who go through traumatic miserable experiences. Um, When she defined these seven stages, while they might be chronological, more or less, they're not strictly chronological. They do overlap one another. Um, But these these are the stages. Um, First, and I I looked this up in terms of how uh, the stages are expressed now, 40 years later. First, there's shock and denial. Then there's pain and often guilt. Then there's anger and often some sort of bargaining with God, attempt to bargain with God or bargain with people. And then there's depression and loneliness. And that's followed by what's called an upward turn. And after that comes reconciliation reconstruction of the way one thinks, the way one lives, and sort of working through now the consequences of this, of this suffering, of this grief, of this loss. And then finally, there's acceptance. There's these seven stages of grief. And what's significant about that to me is that when we look at the book of Job and you look at those chapters and what he has said over the course of those 24 chapters, you realize that Job... 
<laughs> it was written long before Catherine Kubler-Ross. But Job is going through those very stages of sorrow and grief. These are stages of sorrow and grief that are common to us all. I think, and I'll get to this at the end of the sermon, but I certainly believe, I certainly believe Jesus himself went through many of these. We see Job at the beginning of the book sitting silent, absolutely shocked and stunned. Then we hear him cry out in pain, in lament. We've witnessed his depression in wishing that he had never lived. He feels deeply isolated from God and alienated from others, deeply alone. And when we come now then to chapter 28, this is Job's upward turn. This is Job's counsel for us. So let me read this chapter to you. It's often called a hymn of wisdom. It can stand on its own. It's beautiful. In English, it's beautiful. In Hebrew, it's probably more beautiful. It's wonderful poetry. Wonderful poetry. Surely, there's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley, away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air. Far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. This is picturing people who are mining, looking for mineral, for precious gems. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires. It has the dust of gold. The path no bird of prey knows, that the falcon's eye has not seen it, The proud beasts have trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock. He overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up streams so that they do not trickle. This is for mining. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found where is the place of understanding man does not know its worth it's not found in the land of the living the deep says it's not in me and the sea says it's not with me it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then? Does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all the living, concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. 
God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Well, that's quite a hymn that's included here. That's quite a hymn indeed. Job has been reeling and he's been stumbling. He and his friends have been blind guides trying to lead the blind. But now he shifts, you see. His entire point of view shifts. It is an upward shift so that although he still will flail, he still is, is falling, he's beginning to flail Forward. He's beginning to fall forward or upward in a Godward direction. Taking back, taking a step back, you see, this is what's happening. He's taking a step back from the combat of debate with his friends. He's taking a step back from issuing a challenge to God himself to hear his case. And Job, having taken the step back, He's now beginning to look and acknowledge his own limitations. He doesn't assume he knows everything. He's assumed his misery is a matter of justice. But there's so much that he doesn't know. He's operated off this paradigm there really is so much more and he doesn't know it and he knows he doesn't know it. And he'll trot it out and he'll use it every time he's terrified of God to try and defend himself. He'll trot this paradigm out and he'll use it every time he's attacked by people who look at him and think what's happened to him is a result of his sin and his wickedness. But you know at the bottom line, Job knows in his heart, he doesn't understand. And assume... Just for a minute that Job's misery is unjust. Assume for a minute that, that God is, is nonetheless just. Assume that Job is, is missing something critical and essential about how he thinks about himself, how he views reality. And Job in chapter 28 essentially is saying, what is it that I've missed, God? Not, not, not what piece of information, not what, not what fact, but what understanding, what wisdom, what have I missed? When this text talks about wisdom, when the Bible talks about understanding, what it's really talking about is understanding reality for what it is. How things really are, not just how we see them. To understand how things really are for the sake of living well so that life does not grind us apart. So we know how to think, how to act, how to react, how to relate to others, how to feel, what to believe. And I'm very impressed when I read Job 28 because this hymn of wisdom comes from Job's heart. 
He, has a heart, he does have a heart for God. He, he's not willing. He's not, he's not going to quickly surrender to evil. He's not going to quickly say well, or let this evil that's happened to him become a pretense for his cursing God. So let's think about what he's saying in this hymn. In the first 12 verses, he begins. He begins by acknowledging that it is impossible for him to discover or uncover the wisdom that he needs. In verses 1 through 12, he recounts the lengths to which we go to lay hold of what we consider to be most precious, at least materially and and physically. We go to the most remote places, the most dangerous places, the most inhospitable places. We dig into the darkness of the earth. We, We hang from cliffs. We burrow into rock. We reduce mountains to rubble, all for the sake of laying hold of gold and silver and sapphires and copper and But he concludes in verse 12, but where will wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? You see, in this this hymn, this idea of the minor is a metaphor. Job is the minor. And Job has been racking his mind. He's spent all of his strength. He has exhausted himself to try and find wisdom. He's grasped, he's reached. But all of his determination, all of his skills, all of his attempts to find that gold are useless. They haven't worked. And his resources aren't sufficient. But even beyond that, he goes on. In verses 13 through 19, he says, man does not know its worth. But Job does. He says, wisdom is not found in the land of living. Job knows that. Job's making the point just in the same way that we cannot dig up wisdom. We can't purchase it either. If we offered an exchange for wisdom, all the most valuable things in the world, the gold, silver, onyx, sapphire, glass, coral, crystal, pearls, topaz, everything we could lay our hands on, you could not, it would not be enough to purchase wisdom because wisdom is worth so much more. So it's not to be found and it's not to be purchased. Where does that leave us? It really leaves us back at the beginning. Verses, verse 20, and the last section of this hymn is 20 to 28, repeats verse 12. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? I can't find it. I can't buy it. Where does it come from? He says in verse 21, it's hidden from all the living. And much more, it's not found in death. Verse 22 says, Abaddon and death say, we've heard the rumor of it. We don't know where it is. So finally, we come to verse 23. We come to Job's upward turn to God. He says, God understands the way to wisdom. He knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. Wisdom cannot be hidden from God because he's its source. Every word he speaks is wisdom. Every act that follows from his word is wisdom. Every every result, his entire creation 
is made with wisdom. Wisdom permeates everything. God's wisdom permeates everything. It shows us that his wisdom is so far beyond our own. Verses 25 to 27. Think with me about this for a moment. He says, when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned to the waters, um, and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for rain and a way for lightning, the lightning of thunder, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So what Job is doing here is he's looking at four amazing forces, I'll call them, in the creation, in the world. He's pointing those things out because they reveal, they're permeated with the wisdom of God. They are, they are truly wondrous. Think about that. Maybe you have the first slide. Wind. He gives wind its weight. You feel its pressure. Circulating all the air on the earth. Dispersing heat, forming waves, scouring the land, the ocean's vastness. Let's see that. Yes. Containing 95% of all life on earth. 95% the oceans are still unexplored. Covering 75% of the surface of the earth. Averaging over 12,000 feet deep. Home to an undersea waterfall between Greenland and Iceland. Cold water cascading down over warm water. Dropping 11,500 feet. With a flow rate 50,000 times greater than the flow rate of Niagara Falls. He measures it. The rain under God's decree. Every day, one billion tons of water suspended in the air rain down on the earth. A billion tons of water distributing being distributed by the wind, replenishing the earth and allowing for life. This earth, the land exposed that we know as as, uh, the continents of the earth would be entirely desert except for the rims around the ocean apart from this amazing thing. How, How do you suspend water in the air? The lightning of thunder reaching temperatures five times the surface of the sun, conveying 10,000 amps and a million volts of electricity, still largely unexplained. There's wisdom in this that, that we cannot begin to appreciate, that leaves us in awe, that we could never have come up with. It's then that Job concludes in verse 28. 
And he has said to man, God has said to man, behold, the fear of me, the fear of the Lord, that is your wisdom. To turn away from evil, that is your wisdom. That is understanding reality and how things are and who I am. Job realizes that wisdom and understanding, the making sense of life, when life makes no sense, it resides in God. He understands that there really is an answer, but it's in God. And the same God whose wisdom lies behind the wonders of creation. That is to say, God in all his wisdom, that same God is behind what he has permitted. If Job turned toward evil, I don't mean immoral acts, I mean turned against God, rejected him, became an angry atheist as so many are, if he had done that because of the evil that had been done to him, he would be turning away from all hope and all help. If he was to turn toward evil away from God because of the evil that had been done to him, that would mean that evil had had its way with him even more. That evil had won the, what, the day. That would mean, that would be a turn downward, not a turn upward. That would be moving from, from being a victim of evil to being a slave of evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. And we continue to fear him and revere him because of his greatness, his great Wisdom, this God whose wisdom made the creation, which we celebrate, which makes us grateful. It's the same God with the same wisdom who's ultimately behind what has been permitted. Well, that's not the end of it for Job. Job's going to return, so to speak, to his own way, old ways. He's going to press his case to demand a hearing for three more chapters after chapter 38. And then this fourth fellow shows up, Elihu, and he's going to be speaking for, I think, something like five chapters or so. But let me say this, that when God finally does appear to Job out of a whirlwind in chapter 38... It is not to grant Job a hearing. It is not for the sake of the two to go at it and debate God's justice. But when God reveals himself finally to Job in chapter 38, it will be to take up where Job left off in chapter 28. And it will be to reinforce Job's upward turn. The Lord will add 60 additional wonders of creation 
to the list of four that Job, that Job had come up with. And of those works of creation that God has done, and such wisdom, all of them, the book of Job says, these are but the outskirts of his ways. We haven't begun to penetrate how profound his wisdom is. When nothing else makes sense, it makes great sense. It is wisdom to fear the Lord and to turn away from evil. I'm going to close with this. Our dear Savior, Jesus, went through very similar stages of suffering and grief as Job did and as you have or as you are going through or as you will go through sometime. He went through very similar stages of grief as his crucifixion drew near through the Garden of Gethsemane when his sweat became drops of blood and he, and he cried out, God, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. These stages continued. His experience of grief continued on the cross, impaled on the wood. He knew shock. He withdrew into silence and said nothing for at least three eternal hours. He was subjected to abandonment. And he knew what it he knew and experienced complete aloneness and isolation. He cried out in lament from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also clearly experienced the upward turn as he worked through Psalm 22. And we've talked about that and you were participants of that in our, our prayer vigil uh, the weekend before Easter. He worked through that psalm until he concluded and spoke the last triumphant line of that psalm. From my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to it is finished. And from there, peace. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. What I'm saying to you this morning is that our Savior has gone before us and that our Savior is with us. He promises that to us. He has modeled that fear of the Lord and that turning away of evil that we've been reading about today and the outcome of his life lived that way and faced that way is a great triumph through tragedy after misery. It's a great triumph. And yet he did this not only for the sake of his glory but for us, for us so that we would be assured of exactly that same outcome. There is, there, is, there is light at the end of that tunnel that we feel like we've been, or that well where we feel we've been immersed and left like Joseph 
sold into slavery. Jesus, you see, not only has modeled this and shown this to us, but he's far more than our model. He's also a redeemer, the redeemer from evil. We don't always, we don't always fear God. We don't always turn away from evil. Especially when we're exhausted and discouraged and lonely and sad. We know what it is to give way to doubt and anger and accusation. But Christ held firm. He was the proof of wisdom. And he's the assurance that it applies to us. This is grace. The assurance doesn't come in how perfectly you fear God, how perfectly you turn away from evil, but fear God and turn away from evil. Dear believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, please do. But the outcome is with Christ. And it was always with Christ. Even for Job, it was with Christ. He cried out for a redeemer. And Christ was that redeemer for him. And he's that redeemer for us. We live with a far greater assurance than Job ever had that the fear of the Lord really is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, reverence, love for him, worship of him, even through tears. Fear of the Lord is the end of wisdom. It's the fulfillment of wisdom. And in between the beginning of wisdom and the fulfillment, we see Christ at the end of the wisdom, at the end of wisdom, or the consummation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will keep you, will protect you. will sustain you. I believe this is the word of God. And I believe this is one of the deep messages of Job. It's one of the most profound lessons in the entire Bible. I pray and hope that it it ministers to each one of you. And if not now, then some later time when you deeply need it. Job is in the Bible for us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for this portion of your word. There are things we do not understand about reality. There are so many things we do not understand about you, but the fear of you is the beginning of understanding and it is it is really the sum of all wisdom. You, dear God, are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. And I pray that you would encourage hearts here, especially the grieving today, the hurting, the reeling, the flailing, those who feel they're floundering or falling or on the edge of a precipice. 
your Lord, please strengthen them. And as you revealed yourself to Job, this is exactly what he needed. I pray that God, you would reveal yourself to my brothers and my sisters today by your spirit, through your word, in the miraculous, but that you would sustain them by giving them a vision of who you are. And I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.